listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Angular. Dissonant. Kerplunkety. John Fielder is a composer of electroacoustic and acoustic music currently based in the Bay Area. John finds inspiration for his pieces from natural landscapes, science and mathematics, and through explorations of the gestural and expressive nature of everyday sounds. Additionally, John is a theorist and researcher specializing in topics such as sound spatialization and analyses of atonal and experimental music of the last 40 to 50 years. John also runs a blog called Klang, dedicated to experimental contemporary music in America, which contains general blog discussions, interviews with emerging composers, and reviews of recordings, concerts, and new music festivals. Cool. Well, thanks for coming right back on the podcast, John. Yeah, no problem. Good to be back. <laughs> yeah, that uh, that conversation that we had for the over drinks, um, that was that was a little bit of a marathon and really good. I well, I mean, I thought, but yeah, yeah, no, it was it was a lot of fun being part of it. I sorry I had to cut out early before everyone, but you know, it was it was good while it lasted. Yeah, we soldiered on. So uh, we're going to talk about three of your pieces, and uh, I want to start off with uh, this one for cello and live electronics called Disassociation Sequences, and Mm. then part of the title is C23 H2808. Yes. So first question, what is the molecule at the end of the title, and how is that kind of manifested throughout the piece? Okay, so that is uh, C23 H2808. Um, is salvia divinorum and so uh, for anyone listening who's not familiar that's it's, so it's a plant that is uh, you know pretty extreme uh, hallucinogenic plant and mm-hmm. uh, there was a time where it was legal in Ohio and I was living in Ohio at the time and knew a person who grew and concentrated their own salvia and so I messed around with it a little bit, and it was one of the most interesting and enlightening and terrifying experiences of my life. And I actually, I mean, I enjoyed it, and so I did it a good bit over the course of, you know, three to four months. And, uh, you know, I didn't really do much reflecting on it. I just sort of just kind of was like, all right, this is a thing that I did in Mm -hmm. my college years. And then later on, I was working with... uh, I, I wrote this piece, C12H16N2, is about um, uh, DMT, and I, it kind of triggered me to want to do this, you know, sequence of pieces that I had thought about and considered calling the altered states cycle about, mm-hmm. you know, different kinds of, you know, chemicals people put in their bodies and uh, <laughs> how they might affect you. And so uh, the next piece in the sequence, I guess, was uh, this one, Salvia, which was one I had you know, a lot of familiarity with. And so I wrote it for a guy named James Birch, uh, who I met at UT Austin. He and I worked pretty closely on a lot of stuff over the years that we were both there. And he was like, you know, I want to write this, uh, work on you, this cello piece with you. And I think, I don't remember who approached who first, but it was kind of like, let's do a cello and electronics piece together. And I was really getting into a lot of, you know, new complexity and new rhythmic ideas at the time. And was like, you know, how far out do you want to go with this? Mm, he was like, yeah. take it as far as you want to go and we'll, you know, do what you want to do and then we'll reel it back in afterward. And I was like, all right, yeah, let's do that. 
So I started thinking about the idea of, you know, working with decoupled staff systems and working with really, uh, you know, kind of different rhythmic structures that are speeding up and slowing down energy in a piece. And that was, you know, that kind of actually was the idea for the music and those compositional structural ideas that then was like, well, this actually would be good for a piece, you know, about my experiences with Salvia, which caused these really intense, uh, it's like a complete dissociative experience where you sort of lose motor function, you lose any sense of time. It only lasts for about 15 minutes, but that 15 minutes can either feel like three minutes or feel like two hours, depending. Wow. And it's it's real, and it's different every time. And so, in one aspect of the piece, I'm constantly speeding up and slowing down time, mm. so that it might go from a measure of like five eight to a measure of five twelve. Uh, so five eight being your standard five eight, and five twelve meaning that the notated eighth notes are now moving at the rate of triplets. Mm -hmm. So it's the same gesture two times, but one time it's faster. You know, it all of a sudden is played a little bit faster. But then at the same time, I might also say, you know, within or do something like uh, 5 8 to uh, 7 12, but then take that measure of 7 12 and slow it down to six eighth notes within that bar. So it's simultaneously speeding the energy up, but slowing it down. Mm -hmm. So then it's somewhere in between all of that. So it's sort of the performer is kind of constantly shifting in and out of, you know, different kinds of meters and uh you know tuplets and uh also then there's this issue of like dissociation of motor function and uh that's where the decoupled staff systems come in only during one section and uh you know then uh issues of spatial relationships you know creating these really long like 15 seconds sometimes delay lines that are slightly speeding up or slowing down the playback and putting sounds in different speakers so you're kind of it's messing with it, also taking into account the uh, listener's memory of hearing something, but mm, then yeah. instead of hearing it immediately delayed, it's on this really long delay time that's then modulated in some way. So it's some, it's kind of familiar, but it's not. And so that's sort of, you know, that that's about it. You know, I, uh, I had this initial compositional idea, which turned into a, you know, more extra musical idea. And then I kind of just thought about how I could fuse those two together noise is kind of a big part of this piece and you know it yeah perhaps kind of another way to understand the title as the cello sounds that you're using especially in the beginning they're disassociated with the generic cello sound that the majority of the audience might have in their head of course not if you've listened to seriaho but um right you yeah. know but i i'm I'm kind of interested in two things relative to this. How did you get into writing noise for instruments? And then second, what is your workflow process when thinking about noise for instruments? Hmm. I think I, I started considering the idea of stretching instruments beyond what they were, I guess intended the ways they were intended to be played as an undergrad when I was at Ohio university, I became obsessed with George Crumb. Mm. And so I was always trying to think like, you know, what can I do to these instruments to extend their timbres? But it was always, it, it was kind of gimmicky the way I was doing it. Um, I didn't quite get it. Like I didn't understand what 
Crumb was doing very well or, you know, composers like Ligeti or Sariaho. Right. You know, I just, I didn't really take the time to learn how to use the tools. I was just like, that's a neat sound. Let me do that. To and, make it uh, to, to where those other composers like embedded into their language. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, you listen to, you know, like a, a Sariaho piece and when you hear, you know, tremolo harmonics on a cello, sol ponticello, you know, that's... That's that creates a sort certain kind of Sariaho sound, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, there there are just certain instrumental timbres and gestural playing that you can associate with her music, and I guess uh, so. Yeah, I think Crumb was where I first started to really experiment with it a little bit, but really in terms of writing noise and like really abrasive sounds for instruments um i think that was that was it the cello piece was the first one Mm, okay um and and since then i've been doing a lot more of it maybe not necessarily writing for noise but using a lot more uh like colenio for strings a lot more overblowing and really uh aggressive you know growling sounds for Mm. uh woodwind instruments you know a lot of like scraping metals my acousmatic music um in one piece uh i just i threw metal into a dumpster for Mm. about an hour and recorded that and so i just yeah i think i just got into this idea of like you know i really like nice lyrical playing but that's i grew up listening to heavy metal and working in my dad's body shop and you know grinding on metal so i think those sounds are ingrained in me and I got to a point to where I was like, it just doesn't feel like my music to write, you know, a lot of super pulsed music or music that is, you know, can has a lot of lyrical melodies. But sitting down with a cellist and being like, can you mute those strings and then just scrape on them as hard as you can? Mm-hmm. And that really that appealed to me. And that, that was how James and I really started working on that was that opening section that's most like 90 percent over pressure scraping on muted strings in both the cello and the pre-recorded and live electronics it's just it's all of this uh sort of wash of overpressure bowing and that was kind of like the impetus for the rest of the piece i was like okay this is i didn't know where it was gonna go i just knew that i wanted a section of the piece like that and was like this is how it needs to start mm-hmm. and uh that was sort of the jumping off point i think really i think all of these things i'd been interested in prior really sort of manifested fully in in that piece so it was sitting down with um with james the cellist and really getting into kind of well this is what i'm thinking about maybe maybe here's some here's a little bit of notation let's see what happens kind of thing yeah yeah there was a little bit of that um I, I didn't check a lot of stuff with him. I mostly, hmm, uh, like, okay. I mean, that piece wasn't something that I was able to do a lot of, you know, finale playback. So there You're was, right, sure. Yeah, yeah, there were certain things where I had to check it with him and be like, hey, is this, are you cool with this? But we didn't really so much sit down in a room a whole lot as much as I would send him some stuff on occasion. He would look over and be like, yeah, man, that's doable. And then once the whole score was done, then we sat down a lot more and, you know, started working things out and like, how are we going to do this transition? And, you know, do we maybe need more pedal points? Do we need fewer pedal points? Um, do you need more things? Because the, the opening section with all the overpressure is, you know, he can kind of go as he wants. There's this backing 
track that plays, but it's something, it's like three minutes long. I made sure that it was way longer than it right. needed to be. Yeah. And so at a certain point, and then the rest of it is all these uh, more, again, really long delay lines. So when he gets to the end of that section, he hits a cue and it's kind of gradually over like five seconds fades out the delays. And then over about 15 seconds fades out the other sound file. So it there's this sort of natural decay that happens every time, regardless of how fast or how slowly he plays sure. it. But the second section is some, you know, delays that get triggered on a really shorter delays, a reverb, more, you know, really wet or really dry reverb. Um, a little bit of recording of material during that section that comes back later. But mostly it's just him playing behind these drones there where, you know, certain harmonics or overtones in these really spectrally rich drones are lining up with him sustaining certain notes. And I was like, do you want me to put other stuff in here? How do you want me to do that? You know, I just kind of wrote these drones and he was like, no, it's fine, man. And he played, I mean, those are timed. He has to play like two and a half minutes at two and a half minutes and he nails it every time. (laughs) So I haven't given it to anyone else to play yet, but I, I don't know how they would tackle that same problem. So I don't know if that actually answered the question. Yeah, I, I think so. Just went up there. Yeah. And this is James Birch on the recording. Mm-hmm. Yep, this is James performing. So let's listen to it. This is dissociation sequences. <laughs> Thank you. 
let's talk about The Mind is Its Own Beautiful Prisoner. Oh, okay. Yeah. And this is a piece for Wind Quintet and Fixed Electronics. Yeah. And how many pieces are out there for Wind Quintet and Electronics? You know, I don't know. And that was yeah. why I wrote this piece. Um, it seems it was... like a really underrepresented market. So it's it's cool yeah. to have like, you know, the one of the, I mean, you know, I'm sure there are pieces out there, but mm-hmm. you are currently number one in my uh, library of these pieces. So Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I, well, yeah, I got, the history of that is um, I requested to write that piece. Um, oh, okay. It was a it was a commission by a group called uh, Tetractus in Austin. They do a really amazing new music series, um, and they commissioned me. They commission. Uh, I think they do three or four concerts during their their season, and they commission a local Austin composer to write a piece for them uh, every concert. And they got a hold of me and said that they wanted me to write them a piece, and it was whatever instrumentation I wanted. It could be a solo or duo piece or a chamber orchestra, whatever they I wanted to do. Oh, man. It could, they uh, requested that I include electronics since they knew that I specialized in that. And the only caveat was that I couldn't use extensive percussion, and it had to be under eight minutes. And I said, okay. And immediately was like, how do you feel about wind quintet and electronics? And uh, Chris Prosser, the guy I was talking to, was like, oh, I mean, yeah, if, if that's what you want to do, then all right. So I was like, okay, so let me think about... And I had been wanting to write a piece for wind quintet and electronics for a while for that exact reason. I had never seen one, and I thought, you know, I, I played oboe for years and was like, you know, I... I haven't seen any pieces for wind quintet and electronics. Maybe someone there should do is. that. Okay, because you are you use my just my favorite sound right now, which is the which is an oboe multiphonic that beats. Oh, um, it's so good. So okay, that, I was just I was just curious. Yeah, that that G that G A flat dyad is. Uh, yeah, yeah. That was I've I've used that multiphonic in every piece I've written for oboe. <laughs> <laughs> which I is, just I think amounts to four now, but yeah, every piece I've written from like 2007 to now uses that multi. Yeah, it's it's a good one. I I just um over the summer this past summer I finished uh, oboe and fixed media piece and that was oh it's so good. I used it a lot. That's a good one. Yeah. Anyway, uh, and, yeah, and the, it's really nice that you can isolate the G and then fade into the mm, A flat and yeah. go in and out. It's pretty great. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so that piece, um, yeah, and I wanted to, uh, I wanted to open up. I, I've noticed in, in recently my my music opens up pretty aggressively, um, and I think you know it's just again like going back to a lot of the music I grew up listening to, a lot of hard rock, a lot of heavy metal, mm-hmm. a lot of experimental music. You know, like King Crimson, Frank Zappa, and uh, you know Dixie Dregs, stuff like that, and so. For this piece, I was like, you know, what, uh, and this was something that Evgeny Charlotte said to me when I first told him, I was like, yeah, I'm doing this piece for this t- commission for Detractus for Wind Quintet and Electronics, and I remember he kind of looked at me strange, like, that's that's an interesting choice, <laughs> and he was like, well, think about it, you know, that's that's not a bad idea, think about what it looks like when you see a Wind Quintet come out. They come out, they sit down, they might blow into their instruments a little bit, and then they tend to play very jaunty music, often classical music or early 20th century music. But it's, right. it tends to be 
very, uh, you know, I don't want to, you know, talk down too much on the, the genre and the ensemble, but it's, it's a lot of flowery music. Um, it is. And I've, I've played a lot of it, you know, and I think the Ligeti Quintets is, uh, the 10 pieces for wind quintet is about as far out as I've ever heard a wind quintet get. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I want to just do something that does not sound like a win. I, I want people to like basically rethink what the wind quintet means to them <laughs> when they leave that piece. So, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, there are a lot of like really intense drum hits. There's a lot of heavily distorted drones. It's a lot of really dense, thorny counterpoints and dissonance. And, uh, but I wanted to leave them, you know, not just, you know, with this wall of, you know, thorny, dissonant music. You know, mm-hmm. I wanted there to be kind of like, Something the you know, I wanted there to be a little bit of, you know, reflection at the end and kind of, uh, you know, because I, I think there's there's room for that in in any piece, you know, even if it, you know, you can't just have something that's really uh, intense the whole time and you can't yeah. have something in my mind that's just very sweet and nice the whole time. You've got to have a little sour with the sweet. I think the electronics with this size of ensemble is interesting because in most spots you're using the electronics to provide kind of a background and it frees up your instruments for a kind of wider range of expression. I mean, you think about a typical wind quintet, you know, without electronics, a couple of those instruments are going to be providing some sort of background with the electronics doing that kind of heavy lifting. It seems like you are able to get away with I think the biggest problem with the quintet is just balance. I mean, it doesn't, it's not an ensemble that balances well. And all of a sudden when you bring in that sixth member of electronics, then all of a sudden, you know, you don't really have to worry so much about balance. It's almost like you've created a piece that's not such a quintet, but rather five instruments playing against electronics simultaneously. I mean, not, yeah. you know, not simultaneously, like they're not all playing it all at the same time, but, but right. you know what I mean? It's like, you're able to interweave and interlock them in really interesting ways that I just haven't seen so much in a wind quintet without electronics, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I remember when I was studying at Bowling Green and, uh, I was working with Chris Dietz at the time and he, Early on, you know, he was really, you know, helped me out with a lot of these things, especially in terms of, you know, working with new timbres and rethinking how I could approach writing for instruments. And I think at the time, we were looking at Ligeti's uh, pieces for wind quintet, not the bagatelles, but the, you know, the 10 pieces. Uh And I remember him saying something to the effect of, you know, for those of you wanting to write for wind quintet, you know, be careful because in terms of blending and balance and timbre, it's really kind of a, a nightmare of an ensemble to work with. And I had never done it before. And in, just in writing this piece, I was like, man, this is, he's right. This is not easy because you yeah. have like the super, uh, you know, reedy sounds of the bassoon and the oboe, but then the more kind of, you know, the very breathy, airy sound of the flute, but then this sort of like, you know, s- triangle wave of the, <laughs> of the clarinet and then horn. And exactly, horn and then nowhere. horn. And I'm just like, what am I going to do with this? I'd, I've <laughs> never written extensively for any brass instruments, let alone horn. I was terrified of it. I mean, I honestly don't know if the you know, the group that 
performed it. I'm not sure what they have to say about the horn writing, but <laughs> it, it worked out in the end. It's there. But that was it, yeah. It plays some notes. Was, yeah, you know, and I I approached the electronics in that way because I was like. I know how I would like to write for these instruments, but I don't want it to just, I want there to be some kind of backdrop. And I also want there to be some counterpoint with the electronics, not just counterpoint with the instruments. So there are moments where, especially in the beginning where there's a lot of interaction between the ensemble and the electronics, and then sections where it's just this sort of bed of sound that the instruments kind of come in and out of. Yeah. Um, Mm Yeah. And so that was sort of how I wanted to approach it all. And, you know, I I was pleased with the results. I don't know. I think because there are so few pieces for wind quintet and electronics, I was originally thinking like, oh, this probably get played a whole lot. And now I'm, I'm not so sure. But I got <laughs> I got a really good uh, performance of it by uh, the group Quintexas and uh, for through the Tetractus concert. Mm-hmm. And they came in, recorded it as well, and so got a solid recording out of it. So we'll see. You know, I haven't really shopped it around much, but I would like to see how a different quartet were to, uh, you know, handle it and, and approach it as well. Yeah. You say that uh, in the notes, you said that my piece primarily explores the theme of self imprisonment of the mind through the development mm-hmm. of gestural and mel- melodic mm-hmm. material in a way that is in constant flux, but always looking back, preventing any real development or removal from the initial conditions pre- presented at the start of the piece. Can you unpack that a little bit? I Yeah. Uh, so basically what I did with this, um, I wrote out uh, a lot of my music's systematic in some way, not ordered, um, but definitely I, I found that free atonalities never worked for me. Oh, so I have to yeah. create some kind of system in place. And, uh, so for this one, I, I started out with just a chord progression of, I, I can't even remember what the, it's like a, it's an all interval set, probably like 012478 or something like that. Mm-hmm. I, I tend to use that a lot and created these, uh, this progression of, you know, three to four note chords and sat down and even like wrote it out, what would be the voice leading for it. And then spread it out to where you know this chord will take up this much time and this chord will take up this much time and then put that in as just a sound bed you know that i think played by uh i don't know just some kind of like pad sound and then i wrote the quintet music over top of that so i'm like then this measure this is these are the notes that are played and then these are similar to how you would with any chord progression you know right we're in we're in C major, C major chord here. We're going to focus on these notes of the chord and everything else are like passing tones. And that was sort of how I approached it was that each, um, each chord was sort of a new, uh, either transposition of the set or these were the only notes that I'm going to use. And so each section of the piece is that same chord progression. And even at the end, uh, where it becomes a lot more serene and almost diatonic, that's the same chord progression, just with fewer notes. Mm, okay. And uh, the moment where it really breaks from that is the there's a brief pause, and then there's like a wah 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 wah, and it gets into like this distorted drone and just kind of like meandering, wandering counterpoint that builds up to this climax. That's these really dense clusters in the flute, clarinet, and oboe. And these really low, uh, you know, these low kind of sustained notes and more of a uh, 
precise rhythm in the horn and bassoon, and that's sort of like the only moment that's completely divorced from the chord progression, where it's okay. just like it, and it gets to it's it's really you know again it's kind of it's loud it's you know it's almost listening to it too loud would be you know a little painful even probably it was a little uncomfortable in the room where it was premiered because it was just this big cement room. Um, and so it was super reflective and I was like, well, that was what I was going for, but that might be a little too much. Yeah. Uh, so that's the moment where it never really, uh, where it finally gets removed. And so while the piece changes and there are clear sections, I, I feel like it's sort of the same kind of material every time. It's just, it's kind of recycled and it's a lot of, you know, these cause and effect gestures. And then it gets to the end and it feels like an arrival. Um, because it is more diatonic and it is, the playing is a little bit more lyrical. It's sort of instruments passing notes to each other. And, but then you get to the end of it and the final portion of it is this sustained like a one, two, four chord with these half step trills. And then this swell and crash from electronics. And it's kind of like, well, you know, we're, we're still not out of it, you know. It's it even at the moment where there's this extended piece of uh, or moment of uh, repose. There's still, you know, there's still no light at the end of yeah. the tunnel, right? Yeah. I have to say, uh, just honestly, I could live in that sound world at the end for another three or four minutes. I I agree. I think if I hadn't been given the the, the eight, eight minute, minute cutoff, yeah. I it probably would have been much longer. I feel yeah. like every time I go back and listen to it, I'm like, you know, as much as I don't, this is not, it's I don't do that kind of writing often. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I do, I do it, you know, and I enjoy it, and I do it for you know various reasons. And in that particular piece, I always get to that point. I'm just like, I really, I'm should probably extend this out and make this a little bit longer yeah. but you know it's not too late right yeah so let's listen to it this is the mind is its own beautiful prisoner and this is quinn texas on the recording <laughs> Thank you. 
before we talk about your last piece, let's talk about your blog. And your oh, blog yeah, is yeah, Klong. And the yeah. the uh, the website for it is uh, klongnewmusic.weebly.com. Klong is K-L-A-N-G. So again, all one word, klongnewmusic.weebly.com. So what kind of things are housed on that blog? Uh, it's actually, it's, I mean, it's in split into three different sections. It's uh, sort of my own posts where my own musics and uh, musings and, and thoughts about various topics. Um it's either maybe sometimes I, I post reactions to articles or my own take on articles. Sometimes mm. I talk about compositional ideas like, uh, you know, unpacking nested tuplets or irrational meter pitch sieves or pitch multiplication. Um, on occasion, I do sort of, you know, remembrance things like when Boulez died, I did yeah. sort of a commemoration. Uh, end of 2016, I did a big commemoration to everyone who seemed everyone there were a died lot of people that so died sad. in 2016 yeah yeah so there's that that's a that's a part of it and then um interviews with emerging composers is another one you know i tried to find composers under 40 and and uh interview them ask some various questions uh, similar to what you do here but mm. uh more in just written out right. uh, instead of the podcast format and then also uh, reviews of recordings. Uh, it was originally going to be recordings, books, festivals, and that just that was too much to take on. Yeah. So I've started just doing recordings, and I got some from Parma Recordings, but have recently been uh, getting stuff from Dan Lippel over at New Focus Recordings. He kind of pipes things into me, uh, and it has been really great. I'm I'm glad he got in touch with me uh, to do that. And so, but the the whole thing is that it's it's focused on uh, experimental American music. Um, mm -hmm. That's why the the subtitle is "Klong New Music on the Fringe," because um, I think there there are a lot of news and media outlets out there for a lot of uh, American music that's maybe leaning more toward the minimalist, post minimalist, neo romantic side, the pop crossover side, you know, there's no need to mention names, but right. there's a lot. And if of you want a further discussion of this, go to episode, <laughs> right. episode 63. Right. Yeah. Go to the, the previous episode where I was yeah. on. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I just, I felt like, you know, people who do what I do, I felt like there was nothing out there for, to look at the music that I do. Right. Um, and the closest thing I could find was The Rambler by Tim Rutherford Johnson, which is great. And it's focused, uh, though, primarily on um, European music. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like what Tim's doing is amazing. But I was like, where there's got to be something out there, right? That's focusing on, you know, American experimental music. And, you know, I found some things here and there. But I, I guess I'm more what I wanted to do was like, I want to do this my own way. I want to. And sort of like, I want to review things that I like. I want to talk about things I like. I want to interview composers whose music I like. And it yeah. was very self-serving early on. Yeah. And <laughs> I think in some ways still is, but I'm trying to now branch out and get more people in. I'm having people write guest blog entries, um, getting a lot more people in on the interviews, considering bring other people in to do reviews. So it's not just sort of me creating my own echo chamber, yeah, um, right, which right. I think is what it's become, um, which isn't terrible, um, but that's that's sort of where it's at right now. Let's go on to your final piece. And this is a piece of uh, acousmatic music, and this is Los Yara. Yeah. What, is, what does that title mean? 
That is a Swedish word, uh, which means detach, roughly, translates to detach. And so this piece started out as a collaboration. Uh, actually, I guess it, it was. It didn't start. It became a collaboration. Um, as part of the University of Texas does this concert series called Ears, Eyes, and Feet every spring, mm. where electronic music composers are paired with digital media artists and choreographers so it's sort of like one to two choreographers, one composer, one to two uh, digital media artists, you know, one for maybe video, one for lighting. And we put together a, you know, two, roughly two hour concert of these collaborative works that are started in late January and are presented in the first weekend of May. And so this was the last time I participated in Ears, Eyes, and Feet. And I worked with these two choreographers who were... Like, you know, we want to work with the this idea of detachment. And I was not, I wasn't entirely sure what they meant from the first, uh, the first meeting, but I was like, okay, well, let me take that. Let me see what I can do. And I came back about a week later and said, you know, how about this? This is what I'm thinking, at least for the sound, as, you know, this idea of detachment, you know, has to do with, you know, this Pierre Schaeffer idea of sound objects and divorcing sounds from their meaning, which is something that's been really influential on me. And I was like, what if I take all of these real-world sounds and destroy them or recontextualize them to where they're not recognizable? You know, things like, you know, uh, you know, guitars, uh, you know, guitar strings or tape measures or oil cans, um, you know, breaking fluorescent light bulbs, oh, things like that. That's what that sound is. Okay. Yeah, the there oil, are a lot the of oil them can. In there. All right, I got yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Toward the end, about two thirds of the way through, they're yeah. Like, Playing on oil cans, yeah. Kind of sounds for, like steel drums in a way. Yeah, yeah, like really, yeah, crappy steel yeah. drums. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's okay. that's it. And um, yeah, so that was where that, and they were really into that idea. They were like, "Yeah, let's let's do that. Run with it." And so they didn't put a lot of restrictions on me. They kind of just let me go and were like, "Do mm -hmm. your thing. Give us music as you get it." And I would send them bits and pieces, and uh, there was it. And that was that was a piece where. Um, the reason I chose uh, the Swedish term uh, "losjöra" was because I, at the time, was listening to a lot of, uh, you know, Oki Parmarud and Rolf Enström, uh, and a lot of Swedish acousmatic composers, but also a lot of, uh, you know, always listening to Jonty Harrison and mm, a lot of Shiogo yeah. Bay, and so I think a lot of those, you know, just really heavy industrial machinery sounds from. Parmarud and Gobey were kind of seeping their way in, and then mm -hmm. other elements of, uh, you know, Jonty Harrison's music or, you know, Rolf Enstrom's or even Michelle Chion to some extent were kind of seeping into that one. So, so the the big hits, is that the tape mm -hmm. measure? No, no, the tape measure, in the beginning, there's like this sort of and it kind of like, it's, and at the end, all of like the scraping sounds... Yeah, I took a four-second recording of a tape measure being stretched out and snapping back. It was about uh -huh. four seconds, and I ran that through uh, various freezing units and granulators, um, and turn. I mean, it just sort of like performed the uh, assigned um, the parameters of the VST to faders on a little Behringer controller, right? And sort of just froze this little section of the audio of this four-second audio file. And then sort of like stretched and shrunk the uh, the window, changed the pitch, increased density, 
uh, and just start jumping all around and made this like five minute long audio file, uh, and then just sort of extracted snippets out of it to be okay. these, you know, speeding up and slowing down or really just kind of like amorphous tumbling gestures and stuff like that. Mm, okay. The hits at the end, uh, that's the, uh, metal being thrown into the dumpster. Oh, okay. Uh, ver- and then, uh, also some bass drums hitting, you know, large bass drums, but, mm. and then also the, these really high pings. Um, and I don't remember what I got those from, but so a lot of these, you know, big swooshes and then hits from throwing things down stairwells and into dumpsters and sort mm. of getting the natural resonance out of that. But right. also trying to get them as dry as I could. You mentioned uh, Schaefer's reduced listening, and mm. I've never really been able to get on board with reduced listening. Oh, yeah? Okay. Yeah, because it kind of, I don't know, I feel like it 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 tries, it assumes that you can forget your entire life's listening history. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And to me, I can, I can like, you know, when, when at the very beginning, you know, the scratches on the acoustic guitar low E string that you're doing, mm-hmm. like... Those are beautiful, but they're acoustic guitar low E strings, you know? Yeah, you, you can hear it, yeah. Right, and there's there's just no way... I mean, in terms of... In terms of disguising things or, use, like, using something as something else, like, yeah, absolutely. And, and mm-hmm. like, the, the steel drum thing, I was kind of racking my brain trying to figure out what that was. But yeah. at, the sa- at the same time, like... I guess I'm kind of talking myself into reduced listening <laughs> because I haven't I, even I said anything. I know, <laughs> but I guess, I guess my point is, is that it's like, I think that identifying something as the thing it is and, and that being part of the piece is just as valid as completely disguising something. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I I would agree with you on that. Um, while I I think there is a lot of merit in doing some level of maybe not reduced listening, but really focused listening. Yeah, and I think I took this away from uh, Jonty Harrison's talk at ICNC a couple years ago in at Denton. In Denton, yeah, yeah, yeah I was and there. he talked. Yeah, okay, so you, you'll you might remember this quote. Then, uh, well, I, I'm just paraphrasing, I guess, but he said something along the lines of like. When a violinist walks out on stage and plays A4 ten times, the audience perceives the same note ten times. Right. Whereas when you take a recording of a violinist playing A4 ten times, you have ten unique sound objects. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, that's that's interesting. And so I started applying that because I always had a hard time with reduced listening too. So I was like, I can't especially something that is so ingrained in me, like an an acoustic guitar string, you know, however you do it, you know, it doesn't matter if you're like hitting the body or playing the strings or what you're doing. I will always associate that with my, you know, 20 years of playing acoustic guitar. Right. It could be, it could be as simple as something like someone just brushing up against, you know, barely making us. Oh, that's, that's a guitar, you know? Yeah. It's, it's in, it's in there. And, and I, like I, I've probably been playing guitar about that long too. So yeah, Yeah. these, these sounds are just inside of you. Like even some of the things where it's like, you know, the, the, the body of the guitar, 
you know, mm-hmm. or st- the string on the body of the guitar or something. Yeah, it's just it's just in there and you can't get rid of it. So I guess that I guess the thing I have the thing I have the problem with with Schaefer is I guess is just the dogma of it. You know, like yeah, yeah, being and- being really really strict about it. Whereas I think that you know what you're saying is like j- don't you know focus listening, just be present, be into it. You know, yeah, and listen to the point. Like, don't listen for the. And it seems like that kind of reduced listening. It, it's the end goal is to be like. You know, don't focus on the sound source, just focus on the characteristics of the sound. It's like, well, can't I listen for the expressive and gestural characteristics of a sound and still yeah. know where it came from? Like, right. Are the, do those have to be mutually exclusive? And I, yeah. I don't think they do. But uh, yeah, I think in, in that way, um, it's also something Smalley talks about it a lot in the uh, Spectrum Morphology article, but not in quite as, I guess, an insistent and dogmatic way. I right. guess it's more like it. I think his way is it is more about like focused listening and listening to the gestural and expressive and morphological characteristics of a sound mm-hmm. instead of focusing on. But his is more about also like divorcing from listening to what are the processes and the techniques and the tools that went into it. Like, I guess I believe, I think he calls it mechanical listening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's a lot of more merit to that and focusing less on like, oh, that's X kind of granulator. This is some kind of FFT process, but don't focus on that and don't necessarily focus on the sound source. Just listen more to the the gestures and the layering and the counterpoint. That's I interesting. That's really the key. That's interesting what you just said about, um, you know, not kind of because it, 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 when you go to a, a festival or something and you're hearing so many pieces of electronic music or yeah. acousmatic music in a row, you tend to slip into that. It was like, oh, well, they're, they're using this delay or they're using or they're that or or just simply like, OK, that's delayed. OK, that's granulated. OK, that has reverb on it. And I think yeah. like, you know the the, i think that gets heightened if we're just listening to bad music you know yeah yeah or i guess you know or maybe you know like early pieces in a composer's career maybe like i guess yeah yeah i think you can you get to a point to where you can start to hear you know the uh you hear uh, the effects the the more seasoned composers compared to like early experimentations you know things like that right it's like it's like you go through that process as a student when, okay, I have a sound. Ooh, I have a sound and it's in delays. Ooh, that's mm-hmm. nice. And then you get through it's like, well, that's well, that's kind of lame. I've done that. You know, yeah. maybe maybe like let's do something to delays. And then and then you go through that process where like maybe delays aren't it. Maybe I need completely, you know, to you need to change the sound so drastically that it's not you know, you go through this evolution as a composer, but at the same time, it's hard to pull yourself as the listener to pull your when you have the knowledge of these things to pull yourself out of that and be able to hear the music for what it is instead of hearing it instead of listening to it so analytically that you lose the music. Yeah, you know, there's a um, when I was studying at UT Austin um, and studying with Russell Pinkston, uh, we would listen to uh you know a lot of you know we had a weekly 
um, electronic music seminar, we would listen to a lot of acousmatic music, and we would listen to stuff sometimes from you know the late 80s into the early 90s, I guess just 80s into the 90s in general, when we would listen to those pieces, there's this really characteristic resonance filter. And after what Res- <laughs> Russell was like, yeah. you know, yeah, that's that's the composer's desktop project. And now I can't unhear that in some uh-huh. of these pieces. And it sounds so good and it's really clean and it's a lovely sound. But now I hear it and I'm like, oh, composer's desktop project. You know, I actually downloaded at one point. It still exists and you can still get really? like these updated versions they're they're a little clunky at this point because they they haven't been designed to work on modern operating systems but i got it just to see if i could find those resonance filters but i i got frustrated with just trying to figure it out and gave up and went back to you know grm so let's listen to it this is losiora i did it again didn't i losiora
So uh, before we go, let's get to the final question that I ask all the composers and mm-hmm. artists that come on. How did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? Oh, man. Um, it started, I think, when I got my when I realized I wanted to learn how to play music. I was in my dad's garage. I was like 10 years old. And he put on the live Ozzy Osbourne tribute to Randy. Oh, yes. And Iron Man came on and I was so taken by it. I was just like, Dad, I I want a guitar. And he was like, all right. And he got me a guitar for Christmas. And that was when I really started taking music seriously. Yeah. And it was a couple years after that, I think, that I was in a uh, I was in eighth grade and we had a careers class and we had to decide what was our career that we wanted for the rest of our lives. An unfair thing to put on an eighth grader. Seriously. And I said that I wanted to be a, a professional classical musician, either a performer or a composer. I was told by my teacher to pick a more realistic career. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I, well, I everyone said, else is like, I want to be a fireman. I want to be an astronaut or something. Right. I mean, yeah. Aerospace engineers, iron workers, nurses, doctors. And I'm like, I want to be a doctor of music. And like, cool your jets there, buddy. <laughs> and so well, I, think, I guess you showed them. Yeah. I think out of spite after that, I was just like, I'm going to do this. Uh, but it was like, I think then what finally sold it was uh, my senior year of high school. Uh, I was in the drum line cause I played oboe. So I had to play percussion yep. during the uh, year and our percussion tech uh, a guy named Tommy Rossbrum it's a really great dude. Um, he studied music composition at Ohio University, and I was like, wait, I can major in composition? I don't have to major in education or performance? <laughs> and that just, it was all over at that point. I was yeah. like, this is what I want to do. I don't care what I have to do. I will be a professional composer. Awesome. So before we go, can you tell everyone where they can connect with you online and tell us once again your, uh, your website uh, and your blog? Yeah, yeah. So my website is uh, just John Fielder, J O N F I E L D E R dot Weebly dot com. Uh, the uh, blog is Music dot Weebly dot com. Uh, also on SoundCloud, SoundCloud dot com slash J O N dash F I E L D E R. Are you on Twitter? Uh, I mean, yeah, kind of. Kind I, I of. don't. I don't really check it. That'd be the worst place to try to get a hold of me. I mostly just uh, <laughs> like once every three months, I throw something out and I'm like, "Hey, here's what's going on in my world." Um, I mostly use Twitter to post that I've posted something somewhere else. Right. Yeah. I'm using social media to redirect to my social media. <laughs> Which then redirects back to that other social media. It's talking a, it's about just, an echo chamber, yeah. Yeah, right. Um, so yeah, that's that's about the best places to find me. Great. Thanks so much for doing this, John. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com. <laughs>